fine. Is it? Well, I don't know. copy on your computer. There's oh, that part's fine. I'm more worried about the, the pop filter. The pop filter? I called it the thing that it is. It filters out the pop. If he had had a soda, it would have been fine, but because he had coffee. <laughs> I was going to make a regionalism joke as well. Oh. Five minutes later. Because this is a seltzer, the pop filter didn't get rid of any of that. <laughs> Tom, why are you not happier about what just happened? Because it's the second time I've made that joke. The first uh, time as well. Okay, I was like, room. that is a weirdly stoic response from Tom on a pretty fantastic <laughs> pun. Uh, makes more sense since it's not your first time. The pop filters only work in Pittsburgh. Everywhere else, they're soda filters. See, this is what I expected. <laughs> and you were just sitting there like, whatever, he just said a normal thing. Uh, all right. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris. And I'm Matt. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot, hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So, Matt, you are not Steph. Yes, I'm not. No? Um, You seem surprised. No. I'm sitting in a room with you, so it's very clear to me. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, where's Steph? She is on vacation. Fun. We seem to be trading off on that, she and I. Did I replace you last week? No. (laughs) You'd probably remember that. No, Steph is off on a vacation, but for those of you out there in the audience who uh, are missing Steph this week, she was on a very recent episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast. I listened. It was a fantastic episode. Talks a bit more about Steph's origin story and some opinions and digs into a lot of fun topics. So I highly recommend folks check that episode out, especially if they're missing Steph this week. We will include a link in the show notes. But uh, yeah, for this week, Matt, it's you and I chatting. Awesome. And this is, I believe, your fourth time joining me on the podcast, fifth overall visit to oh, the bike shed. Yes, yes, yeah. that's right. I mean, physically, you've been in this room before, I think. I have been in this room a number of times. For everyone at home, it's an okay room. It's kind of cramped. We're really close together. <laughs> We're not, there's like two tables. There's plenty of room. This is a very normal distance for two what, people to be in. What, what other weird myths could I start? <laughs> oh... So, Matt, since last we spoke, mm-hmm. uh, I think you were working on an Ethereum project and then maybe something else in the intervening yeah. time. But lately, you have been living in the, the world of front-end client-side applications. That's right. Can you tell us a bit more about that? And then I want to dig into some of your opinions and thoughts and feelings. Yeah, that would be great. So I've been working on sort of the dream collection of technologies. So React front-end, GraphQL server, TypeScript all the way through. It's just so good. That's the dream. That's the dream. I mean, I like that dream. I think it's great for front-end development. Yes, those are indeed, or at least my dream team these days in the front-end. But had you worked with many of these technologies before the current project? So I actually hadn't worked much with React at all. And this is my first like full TypeScript project that I've been on. And it's definitely much more enjoyable to work with than just vanilla JavaScript. Like, I have way more confidence in not only new code that I'm writing, but if I want to make changes anywhere in the application. So that's specific to the TypeScript aspect? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm increasingly a fan of TypeScript. I sort of was easing into it, and then the more time I spend with it, the more I like it. But I'm glad to hear that you are also enjoying it, because I've heard from a number of folks a more lukewarm reception. Oh, interesting. Was there, like, more behind that? Yes. I think TypeScript, by its nature, it allows for a very gradual Mm on-ramp, which is wonderful because it needs to meet JavaScript where it is. Right. But as a result, I think a lot of folks are working in 
situations where TypeScript is sort of dialed down, and they're describing instances where TypeScript didn't highlight an obvious bug. I see. But it turns out, on a little more digging, that the issue was that they didn't have a certain setting in TypeScript turned on. And that's somewhat like operator error, but it's also, I think, TypeScript is complicated to set up. It has many more knobs and bells and whistles and things to configure than, say, Elm, which is just like, it compiles or it doesn't. (laughs) It's all or nothing. Yeah. Frankly, Elm is actually my sort of data point of, I would love for folks to poke around with Elm Mm -hmm. and to come at TypeScript from Elm rather than from JavaScript. Right. Because I think if you think of TypeScript as JavaScript, but like to make sure I don't use a number instead of a string, you're missing out on a lot of the expressiveness of the type system. Right. And that's what I've seen from a lot of folks is they're more in that mindset of just like, ah, it's JavaScript with a little extra safety. Yeah. I should clarify at this point that the project that I've been working on has, as far as I'm aware, TypeScript dialed up to 10. Mm -hmm. So it has like all the um, strict null checks. It has all of the settings that you can have to have the compiler complain whenever it's able to. And that has been like such a enjoyable experience to work with. I think that some developers may feel a certain amount of frustration coming into this project if they have no experience with TypeScript or with sort of types in general. Having said that, I think it's a similar kind of frustration to things like TDD. You know, if you jump into this and you sort of start running wildly, making changes all over the application and only check in on your compiler once you think you're close to completing whatever task you'd set out to do, you are going to have a rough experience. Whereas if you have your compiler sort of in view as you're making changes, you're going to have a sort of much tighter feedback loop. You're going to know what you changed and why it's a problem or if it's a problem. I think that's an area where TypeScript shines as well because they've put so much effort into the developer experience and into the the language server and the what does the workflow look like? Right. How quickly can you get that feedback? that for the vast majority of folks, I assume they're getting that in their editor. And like, mm-hmm. you've switched over to VS Code for this, right? I did. The The main reason for that was I didn't know what VS Code was capable of that I might be missing from Vim. So I decided that I would just 100% switch over, work out everything that I think is pure magic and sort of want in my life, and then find a way to bring that back to Vim in some form. How long has that adventure been going? That has been going for six months now so coming back to vim anytime soon yeah (laughs) i think when i find the time to work out how to solve some of the really nice gooey elements that vs code has what kind of stuff are things like the ability to just hover over a variable and see its type that kind of thing also following file paths and that kind of thing is fairly simple in vim and getting like all the nice auto completion and stuff but i haven't found like a good way to display the information that vs code is often putting in tooltips and hover hover boxes and that kind of thing i will say actually the completion stuff is also a headache in vim unfortunately oh no definitely shouldn't be the case but still it's a real struggle i've yet to work on typescript enough like in a client project where i'm doing it day in and day out where Mm -hmm. i've gotten so frustrated with Vim that I've been, I actually have played around with VS Code a lot for this reason. Right. Uh, and VS Code just does a much better job and I'll reach for that when I need to do heavy TypeScript things, but still trailing behind. Yeah. I'm also surprised how reliant I am on VS Code's auto import. I've gotten to a stage where I know the code I want to write. And so I'll write it and wait for the red squiggly to appear 
to say like this uh, this type is undefined or this function is undefined and I'll just hover over it and it will give me a list of potential places to import that from. And that again, it, it's almost always the first file that it provides to me, but more than once it has been like a second or third option. And so it's nice to be able to see like, here are all of the places where this could come from. Which one would you like to grab it from? All those automated refactorings that VS Code has built in now, those do make me a little bit envious. And I'll actually be going on to the same project that you're on uh, very soon. Mm -hmm. And I may just have to go VS Code for a little while. Yeah. And then I'll probably spend every Friday trying to fix Vim and make it Excellent. do all That's the really, things. really, when I said I'm going to take back the things from VS Code and bring them into Vim, it was more I'm hoping to tell enough people that it makes its way back into Vim with me doing nothing. That's the dream That's right there. Hello, podcast audience. <laughs> if anyone has figured out Vim and TypeScript in a nice, complete way, please let us know. Host yeah. at bikeshed.fm. There is a sort of one part of this project that has been, I don't think this could have been possible without TypeScript having my back. One of the issues that this project has is that some of the types in it are actually more permissive than they should be. So the types in particular that I'm talking about are the ones defining the GraphQL schema. And so this project has a rather unique setup where all of the types that are being used from queries and mutations have on them all of the properties that you could possibly ask for, not a subset. Oh, so the full superset of the schema and what's available for every type as opposed to the things you actually asked for. Exactly. And so what this ends up leading to is a bunch of runtime bugs where someone has forgotten to add a property to their query or to their mutation. And we get to the point of a user trying to look at that and it blows up saying like, uh, I expected definitely this person's name, but instead I got undefined. The way we are solving that problem is by leveraging code generation. So the Apollo client library, there's a NPM package called Apollo tooling, I think that allows you to sort of generate in your code base the types from your queries and mutations in terms of the actual strings that are in your code. And so you end up with this really nice workflow where you write out your query or your mutation saying, these are the things that I want to get from my server. And then you run code generation on that. And it takes that source code and produces more code from that. And all it's producing is enums and interfaces, essentially, which you can then import and use to build more code on top of. So it's sort of like a middle step between your GQL strings and the feature that you eventually write. You're living the dream. Yep. My understanding, just to make sure I, I do have this correct, is you're working with the schema. So you have a local copy or some reference to the full schema, and then Apollo Code Gen will walk down the tree and find any GraphQL tags. So where you're defining a query and it will combine those two to say, for this query, I infer from the schema that the types are X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And I generate the interface of the specific data that you'll be getting back. Yeah, exactly. Cool. That is a fantastic feature to have and that the workflow, I've actually, one afternoon I played around with this and I was able to get it running in watch mode so that as you're typing out the query, that interface that you're importing at the top of your file, if you say add a new field to your query mm -hmm. and then you go up into your React code, you can actually just start typing and it will autocomplete out that field and know what it is yep. right away because the code gen has just run behind the scenes and everything is fantastic and what a time to be alive. <laughs>
it is quite a time to be alive. It's still, there is the small possibility of breakage, and this is an interesting thing when I look at TypeScript. You're just telling TypeScript what the type is. Yes. You're now using code gen and the schema and a bunch of things to tell it in a more reliable, robust way, but mm-hmm. you're still telling it. Mm-hmm. And TypeScript as a type system allows you to tell it. Yes. There is a lot of that that goes on. It is very tempting when the compiler says that something is not true or something is not the case to then convince the compiler not through proving that it's true, but by saying like, no, no, shush, this is the case. Trust me, I've got this one. Yeah. Yeah. And there's been multiple times where I've been tripped up by it or I've tripped up someone else by it or I've introduced a runtime bug by saying like, oh, no, 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 I'm absolutely certain that this could never be undefined. And then lo and behold, I was wrong. Turns out, (laughs) which is in contrast to, say, Elm, where you can't tell it and you can't like be like, trust me, Elm, I got this one. Right. You have to actually provably parse JSON as it's coming in and put it through a whole decoder pipeline that says this one's an integer and this one's a string and this one's a nullable that. And yes. uh, you have to be very, very explicit. And it does give you that wonderful guarantee that if it compiles, it works and no runtime errors and all of that. Mm-hmm. But there is a bunch of boilerplate sort of overhead to doing that, which I haven't decided where I fall on that. TypeScript strikes an interesting balance. And I think long term, getting type systems as more of a thing that we're working with, I think that's valuable. But I do love the the safety that Elm gives me. Yeah. If there's anyone out there with sort of a slight perfectionist streak to them, having a type system like that is appealing. Like Elm's? Like Elm's. Yeah. Because it, it does speak to that like, oh, it could never be wrong. Like it is, it is the thing we should hold up high as mm-hmm. this is the answer. This is perfection. However, you do have to handle all of those cases. And sometimes that's not worth the cost. Like you are going to end up in situations where there is a real chance that the thing you build gets thrown away in a couple of weeks because it wasn't the right answer. Mm -hmm. And so do you really want to have spent the time building the perfect implementation when you could just get away with building something that sometimes throws an error? Hopefully not too many. (laughs) But I think that's a, a really good way to frame it. The other aspect that as much as I love Elm, the more complex interaction with the JavaScript ecosystem is the other aspect there that makes it a little bit more difficult. Whereas TypeScript, by definition, all JavaScript is TypeScript. You can just run with it. It'll be fine. And then you can dial it up. And hopefully folks are making interfaces and defining the types and all of that. And hopefully they're correct as well, which, again, not a guarantee. But, <laughs> but in terms of finding like that pragmatic middle line, TypeScript feels like the best middle ground right now. But right. I still, it's something that I sort of try to keep evaluating. Yes, It's worth noting that you'd mentioned at the beginning of this conversation people being lukewarm to TypeScript. Mm -hmm. And I have only been on this one TypeScript project, Mm. and I've had a very good experience. And so what I'm describing is almost certainly not the same story that everyone else has in mind. But it does at least show that there is a hope of (laughs) building software in a sort of maintainable and sort of way that gives you confidence that you're shipping something that works. Indeed. I think you share a bias that I have, which is I, over time, have come to care more and more about long-term maintainability, about the ability to change software and maintain it over time, Mm -hmm. and less so about initial right-out-of-the-gate productivity. Right. And one of the themes that I've seen when folks are talking about TypeScript is 
they described it as taking some of the fun out of JavaScript, taking some of the freedom mm -hmm. and the, I just want to go, I just want to write. Yeah. And I absolutely understand that idea and that, that feeling. And I think for me, I just contrast and I so much more strongly value the other, the, the maintainability thing. And I think everything like this comes down to, you know, what's your point of view on these sort of things? And I think you and I just happen to share that having come into so many code bases and tried to fix them and frankly found that the code base fought back. Mm -hmm. I love when there is a computer that can help me with that process and tell me when I missed a spot. And, and so, yeah, TypeScript, I'm a huge fan. Excellent. Well, shifting topics a little bit, I'm interested, since I bring it up all the time, how have your experiences been with GraphQL on this project? Ooh, uh, so I have basically only used GraphQL as a consumer. That's also the dream. Yeah. You're living so many dreams. <laughs> it's been wonderful. It's been great. I hear stories from sort of the other teams that implementing GraphQL on the server side is okay, but not as dreamy as consuming it. This is going to be a hot take, I think, but I'm okay with that. Okay. I mean, I am as well, because I'm on the front end right now. I often find myself operating in both roles, where I'm doing both the front and the back end for something. Mm -hmm. And in terms of where I want to put the complexity, I am very happy oh, to push yeah. it to the back end. I have strictly more capabilities there. It's more centralized. It's more contained. Mm -hmm. There's only the one environment. There's only the one environment. <laughs> I know which version of JavaScript, what JavaScript VM I'm running in. Yeah. Frankly, I really value that because any complexity that I can take out of the front end, out of clients, mm -hmm. out of the user interfaces that I'm building, especially in a situation where there's likely more than one. So if we have an iOS app, an Android app, and a web app. Right. The ability to pull complexity that would be spread across all three mm -hmm. back into the server, like, yeah, I'll, I'll pay that cost. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a big thing that people often forget is every time you build a feature on the front end, like if you put that complexity on the front end and not on the back end, it means that if you ever decide to have a second front end of any kind, you now have to duplicate that. Yep. If you are in that situation maybe this is a good time to move it to the server. Like, instead of rewriting that code on the front end, you could move that code to the back end. And it may cost the same amount, but it will potentially pay off in the future. I agree entirely with what you're saying of the consideration of you know potentially pulling it in, but you can't do that in REST, right? You can't do that in REST. Like I, could, you, could you say say more about that? Sure. If you want to take complexity, so if you're realizing you have to copy a feature over from one client to a secondary or, or third client now, REST is not amenable to that sort of thing. I can't mm. make an endpoint that kind of does whatever. I guess I can. It's the like verb name thing. So create a right. cancellation is the mm -hmm. same as cancel the verb, but it's the nounified form of it. But I think one of the features that I really appreciate about GraphQL mutations is the fact that they can expose any data yes. to be returned. Mm -hmm. And so you can sort of hint to the client, you probably want to update your cached version of this piece of data. Right. And so you get this whole thing where like I click the star button mm -hmm. and I don't have to manually on the client side say now the star has been toggled to on or off. Right. It's automatically coming back as part of the data in, in the response. Yes. And GraphQL feels like it's much more amenable to that sort of thing, to pushing the logic back to the server in a way that REST is not as much. I have to admit, I was nervous finding out about Apollo caching. I have found that caching problems are the hardest <laughs> Turns out. to solve. And so when I discovered that many of the things I wanted to update in my UI or many of the things I wanted to achieve after mutations required me entirely to like interact with a caching layer mm. that made 
initially me slightly uncomfortable. I haven't run into many problems with it. One of the things that Apollo exposes is the ability to dive in and manually manipulate your cash. I've never done that. I have. It's and rough. <laughs> I imagine that can lead to very unexpected behavior. I think the difficulty for me is this cash is a unstructured, basically a JSON object, a mm -hmm. uh, big dictionary of data. Right. And when I'm interacting with it, I don't even know if it's possible to do that in a type safe way. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing that concerns me is I'm already doing something kind of funky, which is manually manipulating a cache that ideally would be taken care of for me. Right. And then on top of it, I don't know how to put any type safety around that. And so my, my normal tricks do not apply here. Mm -hmm. An example of this that I was working on. So if you're adding something to a list or if you're removing something from a list and you don't want to refetch the entire list every time you do that. You should refetch the list. Yes. If it's, a, <laughs> if it's a reasonable list. But what if you're like deep in a paginated list and other things? Like that's not always the answer. Or mm -hmm. better example, if you're sorting a list. Mm -hmm. So if you're drag and drop sorting something up and down. Mm -hmm. I absolutely can manipulate my local copy of that data mm. to represent the state that I just serialized to the server. But I really want that ideal scenario where deleting, adding, reordering, all of those, there's a really easy way to express that through GraphQL. And that is something that I've struggled with. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to have to manually manipulate the cache. Right. It feels very messy. No, that seems very messy. Mm. Stop doing it. But I need to support going, uh, sort. You're rolling onto the same project as me. And if you start just jumping in and manually manipulating caches, I'm going to be very upset. I appreciate that about you. <laughs> you keep me honest, Matt. Yeah, I, I sincerely, though, I don't know, like, for reordering the list. I guess you can just refetch the whole list just each time. List. Yeah. That doesn't work in a true drag and drop situation where you have sort of a controlled React component. Just drag and drop to. and send off a, like, here, here's the order of the list. But if I haven't updated my local copy of that data with the drag and drop, then immediately the DOM will be re-rendered because React is going to be angry at you. Right. You could have the UI not order it based on the order in Apollo Cache. What's it going to order it by? I'm not sure. You just make it up. So that it seems complicated. <laughs> <laughs> what do I mean? I think yeah. so there's controlled state and then there's uncontrolled state in React right. components. And so if there were a way to decouple initial render, mm -hmm. render it with this state, but then from there, let the DOM make this be like an uncontrolled subtree in the DOM. Right. React, just calm down. You would have to maintain that state in your component. Right. So in your reordering component. But you could maintain that state locally. You could have the list returned from the server, clone the list for your own state, reorder it however you want, sending off network requests as required. And if the uh, Apollo cache updates, everything is great. If it fails, you may need to do something complicated to fall back. So what you're describing is making a mini redux in my sort component. I don't think you need a mini redux. I mean, re if, I mean like a very mini yeah, redux. Yeah, as in like just a component with state. Well, probably with, with reducer, with, mm. or sorry, use reducer oh, in yeah. terms of, well, so I fire off, I need a use effect I'm using hooks here. Sure. So that's to fire off. I get the data back. If mm -hmm. it's happy, then I've got a happy response to deal with. If it's right. sad, I've got a sad response. So it's a couple different states to deal with. But Yeah. I'm going to tell you what I would do with the sad response. Go for it. I'd put up a little flash message saying, oh, I'm sorry, something went wrong. Try refreshing the page. I like it. <laughs> it's good. There is an interesting conversation around how much effort do we put into those perfect situations or how right. much can we leverage the browser? Mm -hmm. Like you said a flash message there, so I don't think you mean an alert, but I actually kind of love those times when I was just like, if I were to just do like the browser's confirm dialogue, is that cool with everybody? Yeah. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, 
excellent. Neat. I have a blocking <laughs> API that I can use. I don't even have to worry about async here. Everything is great. I will have this feature to you in 20 minutes. Yes. I think I agree with that sentiment of how to approach it. But for me, the goal with GraphQL and particularly with client-side interaction is I want my UI to be this very thin layer over the state on the server. Right. Whenever I make a change via mutation, I want the back end to figure out what's true and send mm -hmm. that back to me. And then my UI updates. It's largely the same thing as React. I don't want to manage too much state. Right. I want to minimize that mm -hmm. and let React handle when do I need to change this? When do I need to do any sort of imperative DOM updates? Same sort of thing, but more broadly with my server state. Right. That's the direction I want to head. And I feel like some of these are very solvable problems. Adding and removing from a list shouldn't realistically require me refetching the entire list every time. Right. But I don't know how to do that otherwise now. So I agree that that's a good way to fix that. And the other <laughs> one that you said of just show a flash message on the error, I like mm. them all. These are great ideas. Yeah. When did people start calling those toasts? I think that's been a thing that's been discussed like a bunch of different times in the UI circle. But there was actually, I think, like an RFC or a, let's make this an official element within the browser yeah. in the same way that like dialogue mm -hmm. is becoming a real element. They were like, let's make toast. Is it like toasting with a drink? Is that where it comes from? No, it's toast like the food coming out of a toaster. Oh my God. Pop. It pops up. There we go. Okay. Now you know. Now I know. It's a very English centric word. And so there was some, like it's an idiomatic English right. centric word. And so there was some resistance to that. Mm -hmm. Overall, it was not well received as far as I could tell. But okay. yeah, that's so where toast comes from. I should keep saying flash. Flash is fine. You may show a flash message via a toast or notification type system within Ooh, your app, but those okay. are... They're not the same. I don't even They're know if people say flash outside of Rails. Huh. I don't know if that was a Rails thing, if that was the name that Rails gave to that type of interaction, yeah. or if that existed prior in other frameworks. And words are weird. Words are weird. Speaking of weird words, we are both development directors here at ThoughtBot. Yes. Uh, Thoughtbot is hiring. So if you are excited about all of the things that we've talked about or any of the things that we've talked about or none of the things that we've talked about, you should consider talking to us. About those things or other things. Yeah, and come working with us. Yes. Cool, 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 cool. We uh, became development directors at the same time. Literally the same day in the same meeting. Yeah, it was magical. It was. And we have never, on the podcast at least, spoken about what that has been like. I think that's true. And it's actually, if I'm looking at the calendar, it's just over a year. I think it was four days ago that we uh, oh celebrated goodness. our year of being development directors we here. We should have celebrated when once four days ago. We should have celebrated on Tuesday. We should have. It was a long weekend. We could have come back, had a party. We could have. But we didn't. We didn't. Maybe we still will. Here's hoping. <laughs> so yeah, how's that year been? It's been great. It's been just the right mixture of incredibly stressful and rewarding. Like I would agree with that. Before becoming a development director, I had felt that maybe I didn't have enough on my plate. Mm. Like I was doing well and nothing was stressing me out too much. And now I feel like my days are a little fuller mm -hmm. and that has been really great. Yeah, I would describe it as going from occasionally being bored to that's certainly never the word I would use. <laughs> But I, I agree, slightly fuller, slightly richer days on many mm -hmm. of them. And I personally have really enjoyed emphasizing and doubling down on talking with folks about development, helping people think through different technical and consulting and people in just every type of complicated situation that we run into. Mm -hmm. I really, really enjoy that work. And so I've, I've really enjoyed getting to step into this role and hopefully help some folks on their journey. Yeah. We went on some manager training together. We did. 
shortly after becoming directors. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know the sort of, I guess, hierarchy at Thoughtbot, like it's relatively flat, but we loosely have developers, senior developers, and development directors. And then above that are sort of the C-level group and a managing director for each office. But the development directors are responsible for having one-on-ones with all of the development team. There are also design directors who have one-on-ones with the design team. But we also sort of try to think a little bit about our respective offices, what we would like to be sort of championing and sort of the any changes we would like to make to the way that we work. The technologies that we're focusing on, the sort of investment time projects that we're doing, all of those sort of things are some of the conversations that we get to have. And it's interesting as you were listing out the structure that we have at ThoughtBot and thinking back over the years that you and I have worked here and how much that has very gradually and purposefully grown. Mm-hmm. This is, a, I think, just before you and I started, it was a very, very flat organization with just developers and designers. Yes. The way it would have been described. And then slowly bits of management and structure and hierarchy and different levels of developer those have all sort of crept in. And I think those have been very useful, but I really like the purposeful, very much in the thought way, methodical approach that we've taken to each of those changes and what's gotten us here to this moment. Yeah. Anyway, speaking about like what I've really enjoyed over the last year, I've really enjoyed having one-on-ones with so many people. Mm-hmm. That's been fantastic. For anyone out there who isn't having one-on-ones with anyone, you should consider trying to make that happen because it is a incredibly useful tool for feeling connected. What is the structure of your one-on-ones? I assume it's very similar to mine, but I don't know how much we've actually talked about this and compared notes. Oh, the structure in terms of like what thoughts am I giving to my one-on-ones or? What's the cadence? What are the topics? Mm, these are great questions. What's the timing? Yeah. What, what, uh, how, how do you go about that? So I'm doing bi-weekly one-on-ones with everyone on my half of the team, mm-hmm. bar one person, Herman, who has been on the podcast before. I have weekly one-on-ones with Haman because he is our only remote employee. And so I like the weekly cadence there just to uh, have him feel more connected to the Boston office. I also really enjoy having one-on-ones with Haman. Herman's um, great, as listeners of this show probably know. But if you don't, we will include a link to Herman's, I think, two episodes? Mm-hmm. Yes, great times. That's not to say I don't enjoy one-on-ones with everyone else, no. but I get to go on coffee walks and things with everyone else. Mm-hmm. Do you occasionally do one-on-ones as walks? Oh, yes, I do. So I do walking one-on-ones. I don't do a lot of talking during mm. one-on-ones. I intentionally try to mostly listen, and I don't put much thought into sort of driving the conversation. One of the concepts I've been sort of reading about and trying to implement in my own one-on-ones and think about more is the difference between mentoring and coaching. Have you heard of this? Not specifically. Those words do evoke different ideas in my mind, but please do describe. Right. So mentoring, I think, is more what I was aiming to do at the beginning of last year, becoming a development director. And mentoring is more of a, oh, I understand the path that you are describing. I have walked that path before, and this is how I solved it. And so that's more of a, like, you know, someone with more experience describing how they navigated particular situations. While coaching is the understanding that the person who is walking that path probably knows what they need to do next. And your goal is to help them find that answer. 
So it's less about saying, oh, I've experienced that. This is what I've done. And more about sort of asking questions that help them sort of self-discover what it is that needs to happen. I like that as an approach, as a way to sort of guide the conversation, but not own the conversation or direct it. Right. However, (laughs) if I only did that, I think sometimes the one-on-ones, we wouldn't have anything to talk about. Mm. And so there are a couple of things that I've been doing to sort of fill those spaces. One of them is the work wheel exercise that we discovered on the training that we went to, which was provided by Plucky. If anyone's heard of uh, that, if you haven't, you should check it out. Fantastic manager training. I think we've sent a number of folks after you and I as well to that. And uh, yeah, wonderful program. And we will include a link in the show notes to that as well. Yeah. But the work wheel is basically like it splits up into eight sort of pizza sections and you rate each section sort of one out of 10. How fulfilled are you? So it's things like uh, work-life balance, purpose, purpose, values, flow and things like that. I forgot Mm -hmm. the actual specifics. I do remember that when you and I did them, we had very different numbers on a bunch of different categories, Yes, which was really interesting. And everyone on my team who has done it has a different shape. There are different things that they are feeling like, this is excellent, this couldn't get any better, and things that they're like, oh, this really is something that either it's low and I'm not too bothered because I don't value it, or it's low and it's a problem, and I, I want to find a way to bring that number up. I'll be honest, when we first did those in the workshop, I expected it to be somewhat obvious, and I didn't expect it to yield the conversation. Like, I didn't think it was going to be a bad use of time because it doesn't take much time at all. But I didn't expect it to yield much novel, conversation-worthy stuff. Right. And I was very surprised by how much it did. Particularly in you and I, I was so surprised that there were a few things. I was like, wait, if that is a 5 and that is a 10? Yeah. I'm completely reversed on those two. And then that was a really interesting conversation point for us. And it highlighted this thing that I thought I knew where you and I were. And the fact that I didn't was so illuminating. And the same sort of thing then, carrying that into each one-on-one and being able to have that same conversation with everyone on my team. I forgot about that. I should revisit those. Yeah. It's funny. This sort of comes back to the whole idea that words have power and words Mm. are strange. We talk to one another through this medium of words, and it's essentially telepathy. It's I have a weird sort of series of thoughts shooting around in my head, and I am trying to describe them to you using a shared vocabulary, and then you are translating that in your head. (laughs) It's a very short game of telephone, but it's a pretty lossy conversion sometimes. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And we have different definitions for those words. And that's how we lead to these situations where you think we're on the same page and we're not. Which we're largely on the same page, you and I. Never. We dabble. We've occasionally (laughs) looked at the same page at the same time. It's true. (laughs) So having said all that, I have a question for you. Sure. How did you know you wanted to do this? Hmm, that's interesting. It does presume that I knew that I wanted to do this, (laughs) which I did. I was very purposeful. In our office, there were openings in these positions. And I think both you and I had reached out and said, yes, I, I think this is something that I would like to do. So that definitely was true of me. The reason that I thought I knew I wanted to do this, which I'm a big believer in, humans don't actually know what's going to make them happy. And you got to try something out. But it was a specific shape of work that I hadn't done exactly. But it was very similar to work that I found very engaging, which is when I'm working, I vastly prefer to work on teams. I don't like being alone and just taking a task and and running off with it. I much prefer to work with teams, to interact with folks. And I really have enjoyed the times that I've worked with other developers and been able to mentor or guide or coach or help train or anything in that space. Mm -hmm. I've always found that time 
deeply engaging. I notice like time just flies. I look up at the clock and I'm like, wow, it's lunch already. All right, cool. Let's go to lunch. And I notice that I come home both more drained, but drained in a very positive way. Right. Like I did good work today, work that I'm happy with. This is a complicated thing. In some ways, I would say I'm happy to turn my brain off now because I feel like I got enough done today and I don't need to worry about that I really get it done. At the same time, there are definitely aspects of management that keep me thinking. Mm -hmm. But it was was all of that. It was really wanting to work with people and help them and, and lean into that role a little bit more. Yeah. And have you found that all to be true? Yes, very much so. The one-on-one being a structured time. It's interesting because at ThoughtBot, our role as development directors, we're actually still working as client developers as well, the majority of the time. So for us, it's a shift in role as opposed to a difference in kind. Mm -hmm. And so I'm still doing a lot of the same stuff, but I have a little bit more time explicitly allocated to that type of work. So for me, that transition, that dialing it up has been really great, and I've really enjoyed it. If there is anyone out there who's sort of thinking about this or they have a position opening up in their company, what do you think they should be considering before making the jump? I think the main thing is to start having conversations. I think this is a conversation that you can never have too early. Mm -hmm. You may be a quote unquote junior developer on your team, but feel like this is a direction you want to go. Feel free to have that conversation to sit down with your manager or someone else in the organization who can provide you a little bit of structure and help you tease apart whether or not this is actually something that you want or what are the elements that you're interested in and then how can you potentially plot a path moving forward. Right. To reference back actually to Steph's episode on the Ruby on Rails podcast, she was talking about how when she first entered the developer world, very early on, she reached out to job placement sort of folks staffing and recruiting not because she actually wanted to change jobs, but because she wanted to have a sense of what does the market want from developers? What are the sort of conversations that they're having with people that are trying to staff folks so that she could make sure that she was moving her career and her skill set in that direction? And I was honestly amazed to hear. I was like, that is genius. Uh, (laughs) I have not done that. But I think the same thing applies to management. It's a different skill set, and it's one worth exploring as early as you can if that's a direction you might want to go. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, I think we should wrap things up. Matt, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. You are always welcome. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter. I'm at Chris Toomey on Twitter. Steph is at S. Vicari. Matt, you're at Matt M. Sumner. You sure are. Or you can reach us at hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.